We live in the age of information, data. As the internet has become more and more prevalent in our daily lives, we have unprecedented access to information. For decades, big data companies have been compiling all the data that they can get their hands on. Advertisers and manufacturers, they want data on your desires. What do you want? So that they can optimize when an ad appears on Facebook so that you that it comes at just the right time to induce you to purchase their products. In fact, I heard that one, um, I think it was in Tokyo, one advertiser won an award uh, because they had an ad that was perfectly timed on the bus. It had an ad that would come on the speaker of the bus right when they were pulling up to the Dunkin' Donuts, and it would actually spray a smell that smelled like donuts and coffee. And it would in, it, you'd just be led right off the bus onto the Dunkin' Donuts, right? And they, are, they want to use all this data to figure out what you want, what your desires are. And of course, it's not just advertisers and manufacturers. Big Brother wants data on you so that he can better control your every move. One of the prevailing myths of our age goes something like this. If only we knew enough, we could do or fix anything. While it may be true that having a little more information on something might help you make uh, a better decision, uh, whatever you're doing, it can also keep you from taking risks and making the discoveries that come when you take action instead of waiting for more information. Sometimes having more data doesn't help at all. And it wouldn't be hard to, under, to imagine that with the desire to learn, and if I apply myself to a course of study, I could learn how to perform surgery. Uh, right now, I don't understand how to do that, but if I went to years of medical school and I diligently applied myself to my studies, I could learn that. But then at first, what I could not understand, surgery, would soon become understandable. But not all knowledge works that way. There are some things that I will never understand. And when I try to understand them, I will often misunderstand them. In this category belongs God and God's ways, which Scripture says are inscrutable and past finding out. And thus includes God's plan of salvation. Now, I'm not saying that God is not understandable or that his plan is past finding out. I'm saying that God and his plan of salvation are often misunderstood. And the only real way for us to understand is for God to reveal himself and his plan to us, but also for him to open our hearts to understand what he has revealed. You see, the man in our text today was an expert in his field. He knew everything. He had his data sets and he had thoroughly reviewed all of them. And since his data, he thought, is the revelation of God, from God, he felt even more confident that he understood what he was reading. And he had been drawn to the right conclusions. But Jesus' conversation with him at night proves that he misunderstands him. Not because he didn't have the data or the information. He did. He had God's revelation. But because he didn't have the eyes to see 
what the revelation taught. You see, without a new heart, your eyes are useless. You are like a man groping around in the dark, prone to misunderstand what you feel. And this theme, that of misunderstanding, runs all throughout the Gospel of John. So as we come to this text this morning, we're going to focus our attention on why we misunderstand Jesus and what it is that we misunderstand. So as you're able, please stand with me as we read from the Gospel according to John from chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. It is also printed for you in your bulletin. Let's begin at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the, the, he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We do not want to be like Nicodemus, groping in the darkness for understanding. Open our eyes. Give us hearts that are receptive to your word so that we may see you and your plan of salvation and that we may see Jesus as the one who executes that plan of salvation to redeem a people for himself. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. Why do we misunderstand? It is clear from his question that Nicodemus misunderstands Jesus' teaching concerning being born again. What we talked about last week. His puzzling question is not really, how can these things be? But how can this happen? How can it happen that somebody is born from above, who is born by the Spirit. How is it possible for someone to be born by water and Spirit? And that we looked at last week rested on God's promises given to Ezekiel, which as a teacher of the law, Nicodemus should have been well acquainted with. And the question then is, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he know what Jesus is talking about? Why doesn't he understand it? If this is something God revealed to his people, and Nicodemus is an expert in knowing the promises of God, then why does he misunderstand? Part of the reason lies in the nature of what he is misunderstanding and how we know what we know. Let's start with that first. Epistemology, it's a giant fancy word for the study of how we know what we know. There are many theories such as positivism, agnosticism, existentialism. Maybe you've heard those phrases. Maybe you've had a college course and you studied each one of those theories of how we know what we know. Uh, They're all trying to answer the question of how do we know? How can we know something 
is true and something is not true? Are we born with innate knowledge or are we a blank slate? Where does truth come from and how can we be certain we have found it? To compound the situations, theologians have it even harder because we have to grapple with the fact that we are sinful. Some of you may have heard the term total depravity, uh, which makes up the T in TULIP, the acronym that is often associated with Calvinism. Total depravity teaches that we are all, because of sin, radically corrupted at the core of our nature. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we all could be. It just means that every part of who we are is corrupted by sin. And that includes how we know our mental faculties as well. Theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. Noetic is the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. What happens to your mind because of sin means that you cannot know the truth rightly. That it's going to be marred by sin. Your ability to reason, to know correctly. I I used the illustration last week of the teenagers at the sewage plant. And the problem was not the law-keeping Uh, the kids away, but that they wanted to be there in the first place. Why did they want to smell the sewage? And we said the real solution was not a fence around the sewage plant. It was not a sign that said, don't smell it. The, The real problem and the real solution was they needed new noses. They needed to have their noses corrected so that they wanted to smell what was good. And they were turned away from that which stunk. And that's the illustration of us. We need a new heart. In order for us to know what is true, what is right, correctly, you have to have a new heart, which is regeneration or being born again. Think of it like this. Before you get that new heart, you are like someone who can barely see anything, just blurry shapes. And their interpretation of what they see is going to be very wrong. Right? They're going to see light and patterns, and, but how they d- define what they're seeing will be skewed versus somebody who has 20-20 vision who can say, no, that's, that's not correct. That's, that blob that you see there is a person with this or that characteristic. But when you receive a new heart, it's like corrective surgery. Things come into focus and you begin to see. You may have been looking at the very same objects before, but after the surgery, they look much different. The objects don't change, but what you see changes. What changes is you. Your eyes have changed so that you can now see. Paul calls this the renewing of your mind. And Jesus points us to the reason why Nicodemus doesn't understand him in verse 11 and 12. First, we notice that he says, we, Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, did you notice that? And a lot of your translations will have a little note there that says the you is plural. He is speaking to a group of people. Um, and he is, uh, so there's been lots of questions. Why is he doing this? Why is he saying we? Is he including himself with the church? Uh, 
that hasn't yet been formed, or is he talking about his disciples? I think what he's referring to is most likely it's a rhetorical device used as a way to respond to Nicodemus. Remember in verse 2, Nicodemus came saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And, and Nicodemus is speaking as a representative of all those people, of the Pharisees, of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish people at large. He's saying, we know, and then there he was identifying the groups that he belonged to. And Jesus in verse 11 fires back, you all think you know something? Do you? Well, I know things too. And I'm trying to teach you Um, I'm trying to teach all the things that I know to all of you, but you will not receive it. And there's the key word, receive, which is parallel uh, to and identical with believing him from verse 12. So you'll notice that in verse 11, he says, but you do not receive our testimony. And that's parallel to what he says in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, the people do not receive the testimony of Jesus because they do not believe. And John has already alluded to receiving and believing in Jesus in his prologue. If you remember back to John 1, verses 11, he says the word, he's describing the word, and he says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Speaking there of being born from above. So John is tying the speech of Jesus and Nicodemus with the prologue. Jesus, the word, came to his own people, Nicodemus the people that Nicodemus represents, the religious elites, the rulers, the ones who have the revelation of God, the ones that are prepared and waiting for the Messiah. He came to them, the ones that were anticipating his coming. But they did not receive him because they did not believe in his name. But some did. Some did believe, and those who did believe, they believed because he had made them sons of God. He had given them birth that is from above. Now we have here a flesh and blood example of him coming to his own people. Nicodemus is his own. And his problem is not that he doesn't have all the data that would help him correctly identify the Messiah. He has all that. He has all the right information. The problem is that he has interpreted the data wrong, leading to false assumptions about who the Messiah would be. And that caricature he formed in his mind of the Messiah, Jesus doesn't fit that. And so he rejects him. Or better, they reject him. Why does Nicodemus reject the testimony of Jesus, refusing to believe in him? Because He has a sin problem that keeps him from seeing what he should see, what's right there in front of him. If only he had the eyes to see it. You see, Nicodemus needs a new heart, and that is what keeps him from receiving and believing in Jesus. You know, when I first became a Christian, not knowing the Scriptures very well, I was baffled when I shared the Gospel with someone 
why they didn't respond with the same enthusiasm that I did. Why they didn't right then and there give their life to Jesus and start following him. I, I thought maybe I wasn't doing evangelism right. And so my, my, my own inclination is to gather more data. I need, to, I need to know more things about the Bible. I need more information. I need more apologetic methods. And then I would easily convert anyone I talked with about Jesus. But that is until the more I read from Scripture, the more I realized that my evangelistic success rested not on more data or a better method, but on God's prior work of preparing that person's heart to receive the Word of God. And it turns out that all those who do receive the testimony of Jesus and believe in Him do so because they had been born from above. Because the Holy Spirit of God had regenerated them, giving them a new heart and enabling them, enabling them to respond to the gospel call. Enabling them just to receive what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching as the wisdom of God. It doesn't rest on your having all the wisdom in the world, having all the right information, having all the facts laid out perfectly. God has designed the message of the gospel to be foolish, always, perennially. There's not going to come an age where the gospel just makes sense and everybody accepts it as true. There will always be hardness and it will always rest on the prior work of God preparing people's hearts to receive them. And of course, there's encouragement here, right? For all of you who are busy evangelizing your neighbors and friends, remember the power to convert them does not belong to you. It's not your fault that they don't respond and receive and believe. You speak a foolish message and God has to do the work. God has to prepare their hearts. And your success is not dependent on getting more data or having a better method. I'm not saying those things aren't important. We should study and know the Word of God. And we should look for ways that we can connect with those in our culture. What I am saying is, saints, be encouraged. Because as you witness, as you bear witness to what Jesus has done in the world, it's God who has to do the work of changing their hearts and drawing him, them to himself. While it's clear that the kind of misunderstanding that Nicodemus shows here is a reflection of being unregenerate, of not being born from above, we can extrapolate out that our understanding of other aspects of God's word is also dependent on the Spirit's illumination. Paul speaks in this way to the Corinthians when he says concerning his preaching. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It's one of the things that God, Jesus told his disciples would happen when the Spirit came. He would lead them into the truth. He would reveal the truths of God's word to them so that they would understand. Over and over again, the religious elites were baffled that these uneducated fishermen were expounding to them the glorious mysteries of the gospel hidden in the Old Covenant. How do these uneducated men know so much? 
the Spirit had led them into the truth. To open their eyes, to open our eyes, so that we may see wonders out of God's Word. Which is why Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. A prayer we should continue to pray that God would keep us from misunderstanding His Word and from drawing the wrong conclusions from what we see. To keep us from groping around in the dark. See, if if sin is the reason we misunderstand in the first place, then it stands to reason that sin can do that after we have been born from above. Sin has a blinding power that extends not just to confuse our reading of Scripture, but it can also blind us from its own presence. It keeps us from seeing sin in our life. We need the illumination of the Spirit through the Word to come and shine the mirror up to our sin. Only in the light do we see how grotesque and ugly sin really is. Our prayer to understand God's Word should be accompanied by a prayer that God would expose our sin so that we may confess and flee from it. The Puritans were masters of this because they searched their hearts with the penetrating light of the Word of God for sin. And they tried to understand from God's Word everything about that particular sin. Be it anger or lust or pride or envy, all of them need to be understood by the light of God's Word so that they could kill them wherever they were found. Why did Nicodemus misunderstand Paul answered that question eloquently in 2 Corinthians 4.4 when he said the God of this world had blinded his eyes to keep him from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Why did Nicodemus misunderstand? Because he was blind to see the truth. Because of sin, because he did not have a new heart. But... It's not just why he must misunderstood that's helpful for us as Christians, but what did he misunderstand? We know something about the why, but what is it exactly that Nicodemus misunderstands? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus doesn't end there. Jesus, uh, his frustration with Nicodemus' misunderstanding continues in verse 12. And if you don't believe these earthly things, he says that I've tried to teach you, how can I go on to teach you heavenly things? By earthly things, Jesus means the things that have already been revealed in his word. The things that are already laid down in scripture that Nicodemus should have known. The things that God already spoke to his people through the prophets. Things regarding the spiritual birth required of all those who would enter the kingdom of God. If Nicodemus couldn't believe the basics, what hope was there that he would believe the heavenly things that Jesus came to reveal? And the truth is, of course, he wouldn't, and he didn't, and the people of God didn't. They didn't receive the testimony of Jesus because they didn't believe in his name. But Jesus goes on to give him just a little hint A little hint of just what it is that the Father was revealing in and through the Son. No one on earth was better situated to reveal heavenly truths than the one who had come from heaven, who had seen and could testify to what he had seen there. That is what his statement in verse 13 means. 
And as the author of Hebrews begins his epistle by telling us, in former times, God spoke through the prophets. That was his method of revealing himself and his plan of salvation to his people. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. The son who is the radiance of God in the exact imprint of his nature. See, Israel might have known about regeneration, but they they certainly didn't know what would accomplish that regeneration. What was God's plan of salvation? God certainly gave them clues, hinting at the nature of the Christ and his redemptive purposes, but the full extent was not known. Jesus drops a little hint by taking Nicodemus back to one of those old covenant clues laid down for us in Scripture, and designed to lead us to the truth. I want you to imagine with me, you are among the second generation of those who came out of Egypt in the Exodus. The 40 years are nearly ended. Most of the previous generation has died, including Aaron, Moses' brother, Now God brings you back in a very circuitous route by the way of the Red Sea. You're back at the start. You're at the very beginning. We've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and God brings us right back to where we started. And they grow impatient. They grow impatient, and they begin to grumble. They begin to grumble against God. And they begin to grumble against Moses. And it seemed like they had not learned from their testing in the wilderness the lessons that God was trying to teach their fathers to be patient, to trust in them. And so they grow impatient. And it's not like an impatience like, Dad, are we there yet? We've all experienced that kind of impatience. It's not like that at all. It's, it's like, Dad, if you don't get us there quicker, we're going to kill you. That's the kind of impatience that we're dealing with here. That's what causes God to strike them in judgment with these fiery servants. They say, we have no water and the food sucks. We don't want to eat this manna anymore. We're tired of it. We want something else, something better. We might as well just go back to Egypt. If we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, let's go one step farther. And let's get those onions and leeks that were so good in Egypt. You can only admire the patience of God that he didn't just completely wipe them out. But he does judge them. He sends fiery serpents, which may be called that because their bite caused a fiery sensation or because they were red and shiny like fire. Either way, these are desert serpents, uh, which were an emblem of Egypt. The Pharaoh would wear these on him as an emblem of the power and the might of Egypt, a desert serpent. Serpent. So how ironic then that in their desire to go back to Egypt, God sends an emblem of Egypt as judgment. But this judgment turns out to be a grace. As they recognize their sin and they come and they repent to Moses, pleading with him to pray for them, which he does. And God commands Moses to make a replica of those fiery serpents and to hang it on a staff. 
We all know what that looks like, right? It's on all of our ambulances and hospitals, right? It's the staff with the serpent on it, which is a symbol of healing. God, uh, now, mind you, this was not a way to prevent them from being bitten. This is something that they would look to after they had been bitten. These people are uh, hanging in between life and death. Death is their sentence. They've been bitten. But God gives them something to look at in faith to be healed and prevent their death. Jesus tells Nicodemus that just like when Moses lifted the serpent on the pole, all those who looked on it with faith were healed. So also, when the Son of Man was lifted up, whoever looked to him by faith would have eternal life. John uses the expression lifted up to describe a death by crucifixion where the person was literally suspended on a pole, hung there to bleed and suffocate in an agonizing death. To this, Nicodemus has absolutely no response. And doubtless it remained a mystery to him until Jesus' death. Perhaps he went home that night and and he meditated on Numbers 21, trying to put all of this together. What Nicodemus misunderstood, not just him, was God's plan of salvation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8 that none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. By that he means not just the Pharisees and Sadducees or the Sanhedrin or the Roman overlords. He means the spiritual powers behind those groups. He means Satan himself. For it seems incredible that the instrument of our salvation from the wrath of God would be God the Son coming to earth, taking on flesh, dwelling among us, and then suffering for us on the cross by taking on Himself the sins of the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that by looking to Him in faith we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this double imputation. Your sins, both your original sins inherited from your father Adam and all of your actual sins that you commit in this life, past, present, and future, all of your sins are given to Christ. They're imputed to Him. They're placed upon Him. So He who knew no sin, He becomes your sin. And in exchange... You get His righteousness. You get His positive righteousness. You get all of His obedience to the Father. You get the laying down of His life and offering it as a perfect sacrifice on your behalf. That's what happens when you look to Jesus in faith. You receive from Him and He receives from you. You see, Nicodemus He thought that just by being a Jew, by having descended from Abraham and by by being a part of the covenant people of God, that he would enter the kingdom of God. And and just as he misunderstood regeneration, the being born again as the only qualification for those who can enter the kingdom, so also did he misunderstand the way that God would make possible that regeneration and the sacrifice of his only son. That way hasn't changed. 
You are today like Israel in the wilderness. You stand between life and death. You have been bitten by sin and are infected with a burning disease that will not only take your life, but will continue burning with unquenchable fire in the judgment of hell. But all you have to do is look to Jesus, lift it up on the cross, and you will be saved. It is faith alone that saves you from sin. Faith in another who took your place, facing the curse and penalty for your sins that you deserve to pay for all of eternity. And in return for looking to Jesus by faith, You are given His righteousness. He cleanses you from your sin. He reconciles you back to God. And He makes you at peace with Him. You're not God's enemy any longer. And all you have to do is look. All you have to do is look to another. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. All you have to do is believe in Him. So come and look to Him on the cross for saving. Of course, there, there's a cautionary tale hidden here for you as Christians who have already looked to him in faith. As Israel's history unfolds, we have evidence that the faith they had in God to deliver them from the fiery death of the serpent was perverted and turned into an idol for worship. During Hezekiah's reign, he is described as leading reforms that purged Israel of sin. And listen to this in 2 Kings 18.4. Of Hezekiah. It says, He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Neheshten. You see, people of God had turned the ordinary means of grace into an idol that they worshiped. And this shows how strong our inclination is to make salvation a work, to make it something that you do. For some reason, instead of salvation being by grace through faith, we often turn it into something we do to earn God's favor. We're not immune from misunderstanding salvation and turning God's ordinary means of grace into things we do to earn God's favor. It's so easy to do. You get up every morning and you read your Bible and you pray, but then some difficulty comes your way and your first response is, What? God, how could you do this to me? I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've prayed. I read my Bible. I go to church on Sunday. Now you're supposed to keep your end of the bargain. And right there, we have turned God's means of extending his grace to us into something we have done, expecting payment in the form of God's favor, which we should be able to cash in at any time. God's grace doesn't work that way. And like the bronze serpent, the very means given to secure your healing and life may become an instrument of death if, instead of looking in faith to Jesus, lifted on the cross, you supplement your work for his. What did Nicodemus misunderstand? He misunderstood the way of salvation. He had more excuse than you do, as Christ had not yet been lifted up. But you have the fullness of God's plan revealed to you in Scripture, rendering you without excuse. 
But only the eyes of faith can look and see the salvation of God in a dying, bleeding man upon a cross. And only those who have been born from above have those eyes. So if you are here today and understand that Jesus, lifted on a cross 2,000 years ago, provided the atoning sacrifice that saved you from sin, then rest assured that God has given you that faith. But if all that I've been saying sounds crazy then you are in the place of Nicodemus, misunderstanding Jesus and the way of salvation that he supplies. And I encourage you to pray that God would open your eyes and give you faith so that you can look to Jesus for salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are so prone to misunderstand you. We know that it is our sin that leads us astray. We know that even when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are prone to make the good gifts that you've given us into means, into ways that we can manipulate you. We can turn the salvation that is freely offered to us by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. We can turn it into something that we do to earn your favor. Father, forgive us. Give us the eyes to see and hearts that understand so that we may behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that you may change and transform us to be more like him. For we pray this in his strong name, and amen. Saints, before we come to the table together, let